0: Chapter 23 of The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ruhi Huck. The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square by Mrs. Henry de la Pasture. Chapter 23 The Lonely Lady Lonely No More. Away from London, from the heat and crowd of the season, the rolling of carriages and mortars and electric broughams, the clatter of hansoms and rattling of omnibuses in noisy streets, from an atmosphere vitiated by myriads of chimneys and choked with the dust of the wood pavements, to the silence of the mountains, to the pure fresh air of the green valleys after the rain, to the May meeting of spring and summer on the flowering hillsides. At Koyadithel, the old stone-tiled, ivy-clasped house was no longer bared to the view of every passer-by, through the gnarled and naked boughs of winter, but was embowered and hidden in blossoming orchards, holding aloft their burden of rosy bud and white bloom against a cloudless turquoise sky. The dark view guarding the rustic gate stood among the snowy loveliness of the pear trees, like a death's head at a bridal feast. Golden lights fell through the green leaves of the oaks upon the grass, now yellow with buttercups, upon patches of wild blue hyacinths, upon violets smothered in growth, and moss-grown stones hiding the trick of the mountain stream, a torrent no longer. Jean felt that Coed Ethel needed no apology, no explanation from her upon such a May day as this. Uncle Robert's, alas, had discarded his working clothes for his Sunday suit. His rust-coloured hair and whiskers bore traces of a recent and liberal application of Macassar oil. But French women, though not less delicate, are certainly less squeamish than their English sisters, and if Anne-Marie observed the strong scent of the Macassar, which indeed she could hardly have failed to do since she embraced her astounded relative on both cheeks before he had time to resist. She accepted it as an evidence of Uncle Robert's desire to do her honour and was touched accordingly. The embarrassment of the occasion was intensified by their reception in the small and musty parlour, which was ill-adapted for the accommodation of so large a party, whereas the farm kitchen was large and lofty, and would have possessed the additional advantage of putting the farmer at his ease among more familiar surroundings. As it was, Uncle Roberts felt almost like a visitor himself. As he balanced his heavy person carefully on the edge of a horse hair chair, wiped his brow with his red handkerchief and told the Duke that the weather was uncommonly warm for the time of year. Happily, petite Jean came to the rescue with loud plaintive and reiterated demands for milk and his frank requests being translated to the farmer. Uncle Roberts jumped up in great relief and invited his grand nephew into the dairy, forgetting his previous arrangement that Granny Morgan and her handmaid should bring a tray of refreshments into the parlour, where a space had been cleared for it among the shells and albums and fancy mats upon the centre table. Poor Granny Morgan, who had been waiting only for the first ardour of greetings to subside before making her appearance according to contract, was dismayed to see the whole party pouring, thankfully, out of the parlour. But she forgot her disappointment in the excitement of beholding petite Jean and the embarrassment of being embraced by Anne-Marie. "'To think of you being the wife of our Louise,' she said afterwards to Jean." Foreigner or no foreigner, no English woman could have worn a better crepe dress for the poor boy. Nor I never saw none half so deep. And to hear her speak English just like any other Christian, fair amazed me. And the way she took her food. Farmer, I said to your uncle when he told me her was coming. "'Tis of no manner of use for you to ask me to cook snails for her, "'nor yet frogs,' I says, for I want to do it, "'and he give me a scornful look as much to say. "'You're showing your ignorance, woman. "'You know this way for body so much as opens her mouth to cross him.'" The visitors would have been hard to please had they desired better fare than Granny Morgan spread before them, of home brewed cider and perry, of tender spring chickens, early peas and gooseberries, and rich, wrinkled yellow cream. The praise of Anne-Marie won the old woman's heart. She took her vittles with the best of us, though I doubt she's been used to the grandest of cooking. To think our lad should have had the face, but he was one to dare anything, and I'll warrant he didn't ask her twice for all she looks like a queen. He had the way with him. "'But you mark my words, dearie, her heart's broke, "'and I seed her look at the little boy so sorrowful "'that I fair went to the back kitchen and burst out crying, "'for it minded me of the poor lad. "'Yes, petite Jean is very like Louise,' said Jean sadly. "'She waited for a moment and then said faltering, "'You haven't said a word about about him, Granny?' "'Haven't I, dearie?' said Granny Morgan, "'with well feigned surprise. "'Well then, no more I haven't, so I declare.' I've been and forgot to wish you happy, my dearie, so here I does it with all my heart. And she kissed Jean emphatically. But what do you think of him? Or do say you like him, Granny, for you don't know how good he's been to me. I shouldn't wonder if he was good to you, my dearie, for I'm not one to judge by appearances, said Granny Morgan soothingly, and it isn't always the finest fellers as makes the best husbands. But indeed, indeed, he's a fine fellow. They say love is blind, said Granny Morgan, lifting her hands admiringly, and so I'm sure he'd need to be sometimes. When I heard you was to marry a grand lord, says I, here's to do, and however did he come for to pick up with our Jenny, says I, maze-like, but now I've seed him, dearie, why? "'Tis all to be understood, for he's but a slip of a boy, and a lame one at that, who would be looking for a straight, comely maid to tend him like. But you showed your sense, my dearie, in taking him, for half a loaf be better than no bread, and now you'll be a lady, which all the money in the world wouldn't have made ye, if a gentleman hadn't come along to make you one. But to think of him alongside of our Louise, oh dearie me!' And she wept into her apron." Jean cried for company, but she blushed too, for she recognized in Granny Morgan's crude reflections the echo of her own past impressions of Denise. She too had once seen that he was little and lame and delicate and had seen nothing else. The success of Anne-Marie, glad as she was to note it, was counterbalanced in poor Jean's eyes by the obvious failure of her childhood's friends to recognize any remarkable qualities in her betrothed Husband, the exaltedness of his rank did not impress them, because to the inhabitants of Coedithel, a duke was a lord, like any other lord, and one title just as good, or of as little account as another, according to your principles. Uncle Robert subjected to all titles, in what he chose to call the abstract. But to show he was not proud and that he knew his manners and had no ill feeling towards his niece's future husband, he called Denise, my lord, once or twice in the course of conversation or whenever he remembered to do so. Most of his remarks were naturally addressed to the Duke because Uncle Roberts never, if he could help it, talked to persons of the inferior sex when a man was present and the force of habit was too strong to be overcome but though he talked to denise he looked at anne-marie and at the little boy beside her and his face betrayed a sad wonder and almost awe as he watched them both After supper and when petite Jean had been borne away upstairs by his nurse, Uncle Robert seated himself in the porch with his pipe and smoked and enjoyed the mildness of the May evening as his custom was and it was then that Anne-Marie in her long black draperies came to bear him company and talked to him in her pretty broken English as she sat beside him. Jean, beholding her uncle absorbed in listening to those low, clear tones, stole through a side door with her lover. They wandered through the blossoming orchards and climbed together the rising grass slopes behind the farm and watched the moon rise over the edge of the fir-crowned hill, whilst yet the afterglow of the sunset had scarcely died from the clear, pale evening sky. Her heart was too full of much speech, and Denise, divining the sadness of her thoughts, was silent too, yet knowing that his presence and his sympathy comforted her without words. She led him presently to a seat beside a clump of oaks, near the fallen walls of a stone cot, which had stood upon the mountain before the oaks were planted, and when the grim giant Yew, now overshadowing the ruin, was still young— And they rested and listened to the ceaseless song of the mountain brook and the sleepy twittering of the birds disturbed by the rising of the moon. Here we used to play, she whispered, and here Louise used to tell me all he meant to do when he was grown up. And now, what is left of it all? A memory that will never die in the hearts that love him. His share is in the example and inspiration that heroes leave to weaker men. There was a silence, and Denise added gently, his son will carry on the traditions of his house. Yes, there is petite Jean, said Jean wistfully. I thank God for petite Jean. But oh, Denise, she crept closer to him. He will not be mine as Louise was. He belongs to his mother, and she to him, and both to Louise. I feel it more and more each day. I have thought sometimes lately that, that even if he had come back, it might have been like that. There would have been very, very little place for me. They would have filled each other's lives. The Duke had perhaps already thought of this and wondered if the little sister had been spared in her sorrow, many a delusion, almost harder yet to bear than grief itself. But he was loyally silent concerning these reflections. You and I too will fill each other's lives. It is nature, he whispered. He took her into his arms and she clung to him and was consoled a little consoled in the midst of her tears, which were no longer bitter, but only sad and tender. Her utter dependence was very sweet to him, and he understood this childish human sorrow better than he understood the strange unearthly resignation of Anne-Marie, to whom, for her part, these young lovers seemed but children playing at love. When they returned to the house that the Duke might take leave of his host— and enter the fly which was waiting to conduct him to the little hostel down in the valley, they found that Anne-Marie had already retired and that Uncle Roberts was awaiting them alone, shaking the ashes of his pipe into the kitchen fireplace. His nature was not formed for excess either of melancholy or of mirth, but it was easily to be discerned that something had pleased him and he took them immediately into his confidence in the matter. Jenny, said Uncle Roberts, do you know what I've been thinking? No, uncle. Why, that I shan't have to go over to Trefcock and pay another thirty shillings to old lawyer Williams for making a fresh will, after all, as I'll be bound, he do expect. For I left my farm and all my worldly goods, as I do possess, to Louis de Corset, do you see? And under that will, I am sure as I am alive, the Louis de Corset, as is sleeping upstairs, will get the lot.' Jean's tap at the door of the spare room was so gentle that it passed unheard, and very softly she opened the door. Petite Jean lay asleep on the narrow bedstead in the corner, and by the centre table, with her back to the opening door, all unconscious of the intrusion, Anne-Marie knelt before a crucifix. There also was all that remained to her of Louis, a little row of medals, and the cross of his order— But he would have prized them beyond everything in the world, and she hated and treasured them. What was left? A photograph, a wedding ring, and a packet of letters. Her black hair fell like a mourning veil over her white draperies. Her face was hidden upon her outstretched arms. Her hands were clasped in a silent agony of supplication. Awed and trembling, Jean closed the door without a sound upon that holy place of love and sorrow. She dared not enter, nor make her presence known. It was to her as though the soul of Louise was keeping guard over his wife's secret anguish, as though she too had watched an angel pray. Jean and Denise were married in London later in the summer, and they kept the date, place and hour of their wedding, a secret from all save their nearest relatives, that it might be all quiet and private as possible. Yet, when the time for the ceremony arrived, there sat Cecilia in a front pew, with her eyes starting out of her head. During the honeymoon, Jean had the happiness of beholding at last the home of her ancestors, though she was disappointed to find it no fine palace, but a plain three-storied green-shuttered mansion with slated roof and a tall poplar set at each corner, standing among the coppices, streams and pollards of the flat, uninteresting country of the Boulogne, She has, however, the consolation of living in as romantic and turreted a castle as Ireland can boast, in a country not less wildly picturesque nor less well-timbered and well-watered than her native Wales. The money collection is displayed to advantage in wide and lofty galleries where space and light abound and where the owners need fear no deterioration from London smoke or fog. The money thousands have restored Kilmore and brought peace and plenty to many humble homes. The old servants have been pensioned off and dispersed. Only Dunham and Mrs. Pike live with Jean in a corner of the great castle with a maid to wait upon them in their old age. In the evening they play double dummy together and think doubtless of their old mistress and wear out such portions of her wardrobe as Dunham does not still feel it her duty to hoard in cupboards with little bags of camphor among the folds. The Romney portrait looks down upon poor Miss Caroline's ancient harp and upon her gilt furniture and upon the book of beauty still kept faithfully upon the occasional table next the sofa, by the orderly little duchess, but the miniatures of the young marquis, page to Madame Royale, of the Chevalier Charles and the Chaneuse Anne Marie have gone back to the Chateau de Corset. They are the property of Jean Louise, and the windows of the new morning room look out upon a wide green park and a rolling river and distant blue hills, instead of into a London street. For the house in Grosvenor Square is dismantled and the rooms are empty. The policeman passing on his beat sees no more a lonely lady gazing from the window, but instead a board with the inscription to be let or sold. The end. End of The Lonely Lady of Grosvenor Square by Mrs. Henry de la Pasture.